The psalmist starts his psalm, 145, which Becky's going to read to us later. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And that word extol means highly praise. And really what I want to do to start with is to praise God. And we can actually sing three songs, the first three on the list. I know it's a a little bit more than normal, but I really want us to get us into this place. Get us into meeting with our God. Praising our Heavenly Father. And so we're going to sing um, one after another if we can. Um, The first one is a song which I've not sung for many years actually. And I I think the last time I sang it was probably in junior school. Now that's a long time ago. And Becky and I were looking at these and we just really liked it. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Let us praise God. Let us pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you. We indeed worship you. For you are a great God. For you created the world which we so enjoy. This beautiful sunshine of the day. This new morning that you have given us. We praise you and we glorify you for it. We praise you that you have loved us. That you have loved us so much that you gave your son. Who we come to remember today. And Lord you are our God. Who we glorify. Lord help us to put our strength in you. Help us to put our faith in you. And whatever life throws at us, Lord, we know that you are moulding us. That you are taking us as clay and taking bits off and moulding us into a vessel which pleases you. And for it, Lord, we say thank you, even though at times it is painful. Lord, we, at the start of this meeting, Bring it into your hands and ask that you be with David as he comes to talk to us. Let his words be yours, Lord, and let him fill us with what you want us to hear. And be with those children in creche and those who lead them. Let them have a fun time, Lord, but also to think about your love to them. And Lord, we are mindful that there are a number missing and we ask that you would be with them also. And Steve, later on, will give our prayer for them, thinking of their difficulties and their worries. And so, Lord, be with us as a family. Let us work together. Let us resolve any issues and any difficulties. So through our work within this community, we will praise you. And so, Lord, we raise our hands to you and to thank you for our time together. Through the Lord Jesus, we ask this prayer. Amen.
Steve has got the announcements for us, please. Elizabeth gave birth to a baby, baby Jack, on Wednesday morning, weighing £7.11 ounces. We rejoice with her and with Martin, and we pray that God will be with them all in the weeks and the months ahead. Hannah had a bad week this week and has been in a lot of pain. She's trying a new diet to see if it has any impact on the pain she suffers. Alex has had a message from John this week, and he's doing well, and he sends his love to us all. Christine, it's good to see you here this morning. We continue to pray for you and all your family in our prayers and actions. Can we also pray for, for Esther and the family? Um, she's not been able to come for the last three weeks. The children have and are having chicken pox at the moment, and Esther's also been in hospital. So we need to pray and look after Johnny and Esther and the family as well. And finally, we remember all of those in our ecclesia who do suffer in whatever way, and we pray that God will guide us in our support for them. Simon's asked me if I'll lead our pastoral prayer, so if there's anything further you'd like us to pray about this morning, please can you let me know now. Okay, if you remain seated then, and we'll approach our Father in prayer. Father, once again here on a Sunday morning, many of our brothers and sisters, our friends and our family, are brought to the forefront of our minds who are suffering or struggling or are having momentous things happening in their lives. Father, we know that they are always on your mind. We know that you are there with them in whatever they're going through, and we thank you for, for that knowledge and that comfort. But Lord, you ask us to pray about things that are on our hearts. Father, I pray that you... Help us to support Johnny and Esther and the children. And that we, we get in touch and we give encouragement and support where we can. Father, remember John so far away. And we think of all the work that he does. Again, I pray that you give us the opportunity, the encouragement to get in touch with John. Father, it's, it's really nice to see Christine here this morning. And again, give us opportunities to show her and the family your love in the things that we can do and say. Father, we've not seen Phoebe and Des for some time and we understand they're feeling spiritually low at the moment and Phoebe's got some assessments going on. Again, it doesn't take much to send an email, to pick up the phone and ring, to write a card. I pray that you motivate us to do that, Father, for them. Father, we pray that you heal Chris and... He is soon healed from his chest infection that's given him trouble at the moment. You have the power to heal, Father, and we ask that of you now. Father, when you bring new life into this world, it's such a fantastic thing. And we pray now that Beth and Martin and little baby Jack, that as a family, they bond and they just enjoy spending time with each other. Give them peace and rest at this time, Father. Lord, look after Hannah. And we pray that the new diet she, she takes and embarks upon has a positive impact on her and that you take away the pain that she suffers. Lord, these are the people 
who we care, who we are concerned about, who we are worried about, who we are joyful for. Hear now our prayer. Amen. Psalm 145 I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendour of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men <clears throat> may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let's take some of those words um, in praise to our Heavenly Father. I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. We uh, are all in need of excitation, encouragement. David, please. Morning, everyone. Uh, you, you don't need me to, to tell you that, that biblical knowledge is, is pretty thin on the ground amongst the general public these days. The, the, the content of the Bible is, uh, if you let's use the pun, a, a closed book to... Uh, to most of the population in Britain, it seems. Many primary schools, I suppose, still cover the story of the birth of Jesus around Christmas time, and the result of that is that, that it, it, or a version of it, is still reasonably familiar. But beyond that, how many Bible stories do most people know? 
hardly any, probably. I think the one they'd be most likely to mention, if, if pressed, is the one about the man who set about building an enormous cargo vessel and when it was finished, uh, filled it with all creatures great and small. Noah's Ark, as, uh, as it's still referred to, even in, in modern translations like the NIV, despite the fact that that meaning of the word Ark, uh, you could argue any meaning of, of the word Ark, has been otherwise obsolete for, well, hundreds of years at least. But Noah's Ark is, is probably still the best known and the most, quote, popular of all Bible stories. <clears throat> In fact, I tried uh, searching for Noah's Ark books on, on Amazon uh, and I found that it brought up over 1,800 entries. Now, the story certainly appeals to children. Uh, perhaps we should say it can be made to appeal to, to children but it also as, as we'll see in a bit finds a resonance with many adults whether or not they're of a, a religious persuasion and that's some, for what I'm going to suggest might be the wrong reasons um, but let, let's think about it for a bit why, why is Noah's Ark so popular with children well first and foremost I think because it seems to be a straightforward tale of a, of a kindly man rescuing helpless animals from a natural disaster. Young children love stories about animals, as all parents and grandparents know. And it's a good story for teaching animal recognition, I suppose, and also for counting. Uh, after all, everyone knows that the animals went in two by two, the elephant and the kangaroo... <laughs> Uh, don't they? But, but of course, even at that stage, we, we start to encounter problems, don't we? Because they didn't all go in two by two, didn't they? Some of them went in seven by seven. Uh, and why was that? That was, of course, because when the family came out of the ark, the first thing that Noah did, well, the first recorded thing, was to build an altar and sacrifice as burnt offerings quote, some of all the clean animals and clean birds. Uh, and that doesn't usually get a mention in the storybooks. Uh, clean, in this context, uh, presumably has the technical religious meaning rather than the, the more usual meaning, if you like. Uh, although, in fact, uh, a written theological definition of clean, in that sense, doesn't actually appear until the book of Leviticus. And as to the more normal meaning of clean, well, ask anyone who's seen a television programme about zookeepers, or even anyone uh, who's uh, even kept a horse, for instance, uh, and uh, they'll know that mucking out is a full-time occupation when you keep animals in a confined space. Uh, the Bible and the storybooks tend to draw a discreet veil over this aspect of the Noah family's year-long domicile together <coughs> in the floating zoo. Nor do they broach the subject of how much food and of how many different types would have to be carried on board. Or indeed what steps were taken to ensure that some of the animals didn't become food for some of the other animals. So, so we begin to see that it's not, it's not quite as, as straightforward 
uh, as a, a quick reading of Genesis 6 might lead us to believe. And that's before we even mention uh, the fate of those who were not in the ark when the rains came. Now on the whole, the, the Bible doesn't go in for making a drama out of a crisis, so to speak. Uh, some things are described rather matter-of-factly when in truth they were anything but. And the record here rather calmly states that, quote, every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Well, okay, a few verses later, the NIV does actually use the more emotional phrases wiped out and wiped from the earth. But still, it doesn't linger over the event. And some of the picture storybooks that I've seen do actually attempt to depict the horror of the rising waters. But, but I can see that it might be difficult and perhaps not a, a good idea for the artists to, to really express the sheer terror and the panic that must have enveloped those whom the deluge slowly but surely overwhelmed. Perhaps not a good idea in, in children's books, I don't know. We do need to get a feel for it, though, and, and perhaps we can, if, if we can perhaps think of the film reports of, of the floods that hit Cumbria and other parts of the UK in 2009, and then multiply that by 10, or, or perhaps 100. And I think it's important that we should try to get a feel for the reality, for the magnitude, for the horror of the catastrophe from which Noah and his family were plucked to safety. Why? Because if we don't, we might miss the force of its message to us about salvation from the catastrophe that human nature is leading us towards. There are, of course, lots of sidetracks down which Bible students can follow the ark as it floats away. <laughs> Excuse the mixed metaphors. Um, discussion of the size and shape of the ark is one. Uh, the Bible, of course, tells us the dimensions of the ark in cubits, but then nobody's absolutely certain how long a cubit was. Uh, the most commonly accepted figure is 18 inches, 45 centimetres, based on the approximate distance from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. Um, and uh, I, I, did, I measured it on me, and it's about spot on at, uh, at 18 inches. And on that basis, the, the arc was 450 feet long, that's 135 metres, 75 me uh, feet wide, and uh, 45 feet tall. Which, by the way, is absolutely enormous. Um, forget those drawings of a little ship with an elephant's trunk sticking out of one end and a giraffe's neck out of the other. Uh, the ark as described in Genesis is about the length of one and a half football pitches and uh, uh, taller than a three-story building. More than enough, incidentally, for two separate decks, each with giraffes on. And uh, to put it into perspective, the Santa Maria, in which Columbus sailed to America, was about 70 feet long, compared to the Ark at 450 feet. And I understand that the first ship built that exceeded the length of the Ark was not built until the late 1800s. All very fascinating, but does it matter? And, and my answer would have to be, not really.
But then, of course, there's, there's the question of the flood itself. We love that, don't we? You know what I mean? Was it a worldwide flood? Or was it more local, if still pretty widespread event? And one central question in this dispute is obviously the matter of whether there's enough water to cover all the Earth's mountains, and then some. And I'm, I'm no expert to that kind of thing, but common sense seemed to me to suggest that there couldn't possibly be enough water to go past the summit of Everest, uh, which is, uh, as you know, over 29,000 feet high. That's uh, 8,800 metres, or about five and a half miles. And a brief spot of research on the internet suggested that even those who believe in a universal flood agree that there isn't enough water to cover all the existing, now existing, mountains. Uh, one that I read claimed that the water level could have reached about 3,000 metres, which is uh, about one-third of the way up Everest, uh, and which in fact doesn't even reach to the top of Mount Ararat, which is just over 5,000 metres high. This, it should be said, doesn't worry the, the pro-universal uh, group because they, in any case, generally argue that the very high mountains were formed by cataclysmic geological changes that accompanied the flood. Well, you, I don't know, maybe you get the drift of where my feelings lie about this and you, you might disagree, I don't know. Uh, whether you do probably depends on whether you believe that the Bible sometimes uses allegory to teach deep and important truths about God and our relationship with him and again I would have to say that whilst debate about the reality of the flood may be interesting I don't think that in the end it's what's important about Genesis chapter 6 to 9 I tend to share the view expressed by by the late Ray Steadman Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him he's an American evangelist uh, and his writings often seem to me full of wisdom And here's what he wrote about those chapters in in Genesis. The great flood is not the centre of attention here. It is the story of one man and his family. Why did Noah survive the flood? That is the supreme question. Not why or how did the flood occur, but why did one man and his family survive? And surely that's right, isn't it? And and that's why I wanted to talk briefly about Noah today. Most Bibles that have uh, man-made section headings, such as the NIV, begin Genesis 6 with a heading that says, The Flood. Which rather suggests that the sub-editors haven't read very carefully because the text provides its own heading in verse 9 of chapter 6 where it reads, this is the account of the flood? No. This is the account of Noah. Of course, there's a a little prelude first, which says uh, in verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that phrase and its contrast with what's said about Noah are crucial in our understanding of what this dramatic story is trying to tell us. And make no mistake, we are meant to learn from the story of Noah. We have that, I think, on the best authority. When Jesus was asked when the kingdom of God would come, he replied, Luke 17, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking and marrying 
up to the day when Noah entered the ark. The flood came and destroyed them all. And the Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 3, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So come, come with me briefly, if you will, to, to, to Genesis, to the history of the man, of Noah, man Noah and his family. And, and let's see if we can discover what's really important about it. I've already mentioned um, the, the little prelude in verses 5 to 7. Mankind had become almost use, universally wicked, and this gave God tremendous grief, so much so that he sent a huge catastrophe to wipe out all the wickedness. You can understand the symbolism of this in, in one of two different ways, or perhaps even in both if you want to. Some people see a parallel with the way that the wickedness of our present world, particularly the selfishness, the self-centeredness, are leading inevitably to a global catastrophe led by warfare or famine or both. Others see, perhaps as well as that worldly interpretation, the more spiritual lesson that the New Testament leads us toward, that, that God offers eternal life to those who seek righteousness now, and that the catastrophe of awaiting, awaiting those who don't choose God's way is the grave and eternal nothingness. So, whilst the flood is an important part of the symbolism, the real key to unlocking it is the survival of Noah and his family. That's why the story actually begins, in its, in its very first words, with a straight answer to the question, why did Noah survive? All the rest, really, is illustration. Here's what it says, uh, verse 9 of Genesis 6. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the pe people of his time, and he walked with God. Here, then, is a description of the sort of man whom God reckons worthy to survive a world disaster, whether literal or spiritual. It says that Noah was a good man. It says that he was blameless among the people of his time, NIV, or blameless in his generation, as some of the older versions put it. He was an honest man, it seems to be saying. He dealt fairly with his neighbours and his business associates, and so, of course, most people would say, well, that explains it, doesn't it? God recognised that Noah was a good man, and therefore he chose him to be saved. Obviously, you would choose the good man to be saved. It's as simple as that. But, of course, it isn't. Because it's not about goodness. It's about righteousness. Yes, Noah was blameless among the people, but not, not, that's not the first thing that God said about him. God says first, Noah was a righteous man. He was righteous. That's what this is all about. That's what his survival was all about. That's what salvation is all about. There are, I think you could say, 
two stages that take a person from being good to being righteous. <clears throat> the first involves two different aspects of doing good. One is the relationship between the good deed and the person to whom it's done. And the other is the relationship between the good deed and the person who does the good deed. And the first is clear to other people, certainly clear to the recipient of the good deed and very often clear to others too. Although scripture, of course, makes it clear that good deeds are better done privately. The second is about the motive for carrying out the good deed, which is known only to the doer and, of course, to God. It, as far back as, as 1 Samuel chapter 16, God said to Samuel before he selected David, and you remember it well, the, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, okay, slightly different context, admittedly, but the, the principle is absolutely the same. Actually, Jesus tosses a proverbial spanner into the works regarding any discussion of what it means to be good. Uh, talking to the rich young man in Luke 18, he insists that only God is good. And Ray Stedman suggests, if I've understood him correctly, that this means that Noah, or, or indeed any other man or woman, can only really be doing good if he gives himself wholly into God's hands so that in effect... God is working in him and through him. <coughs> and that may not be too far from the mark, I think. Because if you're going to ask God to work through you, you can't expect to control what you'll be asked to do. And what that means is that you have to have absolute faith. And that brings us to the second of those stages of moving from good to righteous. Did Noah pass over control of his life to God? Well, here's the answer. Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And it's another of those short verses that you can all too easily read past without recognising the power of it. But, but just think of the number of opportunities that Noah might have had to say, you want me to do what, Lord? You cannot be serious. For example, um, uh, it's going to rain, Noah, non-stop for 40 days and nights. Well, um, some commentators say that since this is the first mention of rain in Scripture, Noah could have pleaded that he didn't even know what God was talking about. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Even if he had experienced rain, the suggestion in that part of the world that it would rain for nearly six weeks without stopping must surely have, have taxed Noah's credulity. I want you to build a boat. Well, okay, Lord, I've seen boats on the river. Um, and I want it to be 450 feet long, and uh, you want it to be how big? <laughs> and then I want you to round up lots of wild animals. Have you any idea how to do that, Lord? Well, yes, I suppose you have, but me, Lord, and the missus. And then you and the family will be spending a year or so locked in the boat with the animals. Oh, no, Lord, imagine the smell. No, I don't think I can go through with this. Was that the way that Noah reacted? No, it wasn't. 
Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Why did he? Because he had faith. Hebrews 11 verse 7 By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And again, just one verse, but it says so much. His reaction to God is described as holy fear. I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, but somehow it sounds just right, very appropriate. More importantly, however, it says that he became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And if I may quote Ray Steadman again, that is the only kind of righteousness that the Bible knows anything about. It is a righteousness which is not a result of our working, not a result of our best efforts to please God, but a righteousness which comes by believing God. That is the kind that Noah had. So, to understand the true significance of the story of Noah, we have to recognise what it is really telling us, and that is this, that Noah did not do what he did because he was a righteous man. On the contrary, God made him righteous because of what he did, or more particularly because of the motive for doing what he did, and that was his absolute faith in God. And because he had faith, and was therefore deemed by God to be righteous, he was saved from the catastrophe that was destined to overtake mankind. Now, righteousness by faith is one of the key doctrines of the New Testament, of course. It, it dominates the early chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, especially chapter 3. And Paul, of course, was battling against the Jewish nation's centuries-old, millennia-old, actually, Reliance on the keeping of the law as their defining characteristic and changing that mindset was never going to be easy even though Paul had some quite telling Old Testament passages to back up his message. He stresses in Romans 3 verse 20 that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. On the contrary, he says, through the law we become conscious of sin. That's as far as the law has ever been able to take us, he seems to be saying, clearly talking to the Jews among his readers. But now, he continues, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And this is a completely new concept for them, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Because although Paul explains in verse 22 that this righteousness comes, sorry, from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, he only says that after he says to them, quite bluntly, any well-read Jew really should already know about righteousness by faith. Let's just go back and read the whole of verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And you know what, says Paul? We Jews might like to think that the strength of our law is its long and distinguished history, stretching right back to Moses. Well, the fact is, 
that righteousness by faith was established as a principle hundreds of years before that. Let me explain, he says, uh, and he takes them back to the time of Abraham. And Paul uses Abraham, as you know, to illustrate the principle of righteousness by faith. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul was quite right, of course. Uh, That's exactly what it does say in Genesis 15, verse 6. You know the context. God said to Abraham, in effect, you are the starting point for my development of a nation who will be my special people. Look at all the stars in the sky. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham must have been surprised by this because, of course, he had no children and there didn't seem much likelihood that he ever would have any children. The record doesn't stop to tell us whether Abraham struggled to comprehend God's message. All it tells us is the outcome. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And I can understand why Paul chose Abraham for his illustration. As as Hebrews 11 makes clear, this was not the first occasion nor the last on which Abraham believed God and acted on his belief when standard human reasoning might well have said, no, I don't think so. But the fact is, as we've seen, the origins of righteousness by faith were recorded even earlier than the time of Abraham when a man built an enormous boat miles from the sea in the face of what must have been cruel, never-ending barracking from cynical neighbours. That's why I think it's particularly appropriate that, that Peter was inspired to link Noah's salvation to ours. He says, you'll remember, that those few souls in the ark were saved through water. And, verse 21, this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. But notice how Peter continues there. It saves you, he says, by the... by the what? By the good deeds you've done? By the keeping of the law? No, not by that. By what then? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in writing this Peter takes righteousness by faith back past Moses back past Abraham right back to Noah and more than that Peter agrees with Paul and they didn't always agree did they for they were very different characters Peter agrees with Paul that salvation comes through faith in God's way of doing things in particular for us in the Christian era through faith in the saving name of Jesus our baptism showed our commitment to that faith our weekly remembrance shows and and strengthens yes, strengthens our continuing commitment And daily our commitment is tested uh, for each of us in different ways. 
by the direction that our life as a child of God leads us under God's will. And the Bible helps us along that road in lots of ways. But most of all, I think, by showing us the journeys and the struggles of men and women who have travelled before us. Not least of whom, I suggest, we find in the story of Noah. And it really doesn't matter whether you think it's a true story or an allegory. It really doesn't matter how big the ark was or how the animals were fed or how far the flood extended. What matters is what we learn from it. And what we learn is why Noah was saved. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's as simple and at the same time as profound as that. And we seek nothing more and nothing less than that as we renew and celebrate now the relationship into which God has invited us. Thank you, David. Before we come and eat of this simple meal together in remembrance of the Lord Jesus, that Saviour that God gave us, let's sing Jesus the Saviour from God, Christ, Son of Man, fed by the word of the Lord, raised in the land, born of the Spirit. You grew into the world, living through childhood, like all of us do. Someone like me, someone like me. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you would not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And those words came to mind when David was talking about Noah. Going, what on earth, Lord? What do you want me to do to build this great big boat? How on earth am I going to do it? An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. That's how Jesus got through. God was always with the Lord Jesus. At the most difficult times throughout his life. An angel was there with him. And we come to remember that difficult time in Jesus' life. Because only because of that is our salvation. Only because of Jesus' death we have salvation. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God after taking the cup he gave thanks and said take this and divide it among your, you 
For I will not, if I tell you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So let us remember what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done by setting up a new covenant, a new relationship with the Father that we can call God our Father, that we can draw near to him, that God can look at us that can, he, God can guide us in all of our lives. Ewald, would you give thanks for the bread, please? Almighty Father in heaven, all honour and glory, praise and thanks are due to you, because only you are God. You are the King of the universe. We are so blessed to be able to come here this morning to worship you together. Mighty God, we do thank you so much for having been, for having given a wonderful hope of life in your kingdom. And we pray this kingdom will come soon. You have given us your son Jesus, the light of the world. We remember now your dear son by sharing this bread with thankful hearts. It represents his body sacrificed on our behalf. Please bless it to us and help each one of us to partake of it in a worthy manner. Through Jesus we pray and for Jesus' sake, please hear us. Amen. The bread reminds us of the body of the Lord Jesus. John, will you come forward and give thanks for the wine, please? Dear Holy Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for other people. They teach us so much. Thank you for Noah, Lord. He trusted you. He trusted you so much. He did exactly what you said. And he walked with you. I really like that phrase, Lord. Thank you for that. I don't think I'm like that. At least, not to the extent that Noah was. I'm not sure how many of us are, Lord. But I do think we can walk with you. Thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, you trusted your father. Noah was saved from the pain of death. I know he had other problems, but he was saved from that. But you, Lord Jesus, you trusted your father and went through the agony, the excruciating agony of death because you trusted your Father.
and because you loved us. And your trust was founded on the right things. You're alive. You live. And we want to live with you, Lord Jesus. And here we have a little bit of wine. And we pray as we drink it that we will allow you to live in us. And lead us and help us to walk with you. In everything we do, in the good bits and the bad bits, to come and talk to you, Lord Jesus. To trust you. To come to know you. To do what you command us to do. Lord, thank you. So, as we drink this, help us to rejoice, Lord. And know that you love us and that you are always with us. Bless us, Lord. Thank you. Amen. The wine reminds us of the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so we come to the end of our gathering together. And I'd like to finish as we started in the Psalms. Some words of David. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let, him, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that they will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you de deep Great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit dip trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendour is above the earth and the heavens. Let us take those thoughts with us, if we can, this week. Let us walk with God. Let us walk with the Lord Jesus by our side, as he said he would do. Let us just not leave the praise of God to this place. When we wake up on Monday morning, not feeling like going to work or not really feeling like doing anything, let us remember to praise God and to remember Noah. That I'm sure some days when he was building that ark, he didn't want to get up in the morning. He didn't want to 
continue to build, to continue to be ridiculed. Let us praise God every day of our lives. Great is your faithfulness, O God my Father. You have fulfilled all your promise to me. You never fail and your love is unchanging. All you have been, you forever will be. Great is your faithfulness. Lord Jesus, thank you for your invitation to this table this morning. For the opportunity to share this bread and wine as you asked us to do, to remember you. You you know us so well, Father. You know us so well, Lord Jesus, that that we are that that we have things on our mind and we forget and that we need this regular regular time to meet together and to remember you and to celebrate that amazing gift of righteousness that we have in you because we believe in you we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and Father we know you are a faithful God and we know that when we walk out of this place the cares of life will sometimes uh, mean that we that we forget to live for you that we forget to live with you and we pray that you'll help us uh, this coming week not to do that to, to live our lives in service of you and to remember your faithfulness and to remember uh, your gift of righteousness be with us as we leave this, pray, this place we pray now Lord Jesus help us to know your presence walking alongside us uh, and we pray that you'll give us strength in whatever we uh, we meet this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.